Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Welcome to season two of the podcast, where we are going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week, I will talk to a new guest, and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid-fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, we would love for you to subscribe and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Flatball Collective. Want to show your love for Ultimate and Disc Golf? Check out Flatball Collective, an everyday apparel brand that's inspired by our favorite sports of Ultimate and Disc Golf. Designed by players from around the world, who also happen to be talented artists, each item represents a unique perspective of the sport. Be proud of your passion and rep it every day when you are off the field. Tees, hoodies, toques, towels, mugs, and more. Pick up your favorite item online at Flatball Collective on Instagram or flatballcollective.com. Use code ONEANDONLY15 to get 15% off your order. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Jonathan Goose Helton. Goose is the two-time American Ultimate Disc League MVP and plays for the men's club team, the SoCal Condors, and the San Diego Growlers of the AUDL. He is also the strength and conditioning coach and CEO of GamePoint Performance. As a player, Goose has played Club Ultimate for Chicago Machine, Raleigh Ring of Fire, and SoCal Condors. He has placed third at the USA Ultimate National Championships three times, once with Machine in 2015 and twice with Ring of Fire in 2017 and 2018. Goose became a World Masters Ultimate Club Champion with Raleigh Boneyard in 2018. He has represented USA both on the beach and on the grass. On the beach, he has won two gold medals in 2015 and 2017, and on the grass, he won gold with the men's team at the 2016 World Ultimate and Guts Championships. He was also selected to be on the men's team for the 2020 WUGC USA team. Goose has also been a coach in Ultimate, leading the Chicago Cut Camp conditioning sessions since 2012, and he has led Ultimate in training clinics in the U.S., Panama, England, Russia, Dominican Republic, and the Philippines. Here is my interview with Jonathan Goose Helton. All right, so I'm here with Jonathan Goose Helton, two-time AUDL MVP, accomplished club career as well. Goose, how are you doing today? Doing great, Theo. Thanks for uh, asking me to have this conversation. For sure. And I'm, uh, as I said off air there, I'm jealous that you are living in sunny San Diego. It's probably not sunny all the time, but it's definitely a lot warmer than when you were living in Chicago. Yeah, there's a huge improvement in uh, weather quality here in San Diego overall. Uh, I think the high today will be 74 and it will be sunny. So, And Nationals was supposed to be here this week. It would have been a perfect week for it. Yeah, unfortunately, as we're recording uh, in mid to late October here, uh, USA Ultimate Nationals would have been happening. But obviously with COVID-19, it's a no-go this year. Let's talk a little bit here about your career. How did you get started to Ultimate and became known as Goose Helm? Well, I think the first time I was introduced to Ultimate at all was at a church youth group thing, and I hated it. I I couldn't throw Frisbee very well, and so it just like made the whole experience, we'll just say subpar. And then I don't know what happened. I just started to throw around a little bit with, with some friends with, with a real disc, and I did enjoy that, and we started making some pickup games on uh, like Sunday afternoons. And then eventually we played in a, a local high school tournament that was not of any official means. I think there were like four fields all on a football field, all happening at the same time. So it was like four on four happening or what? Yeah. I, I mean, shoot, it, it could have been three on three or it could have been four on four. I, I really can't remember. It was a long time ago, but we, we won that tournament even against uh, the teachers. And so we thought we were big shots. The, the funny thing is that a couple of years later, you know, we make our way into college and my buddy, Josh Shepard, he's one of the owner of Cut Camps, he and I are best friends. And um, he, he was asked to go play with this club team that was at the college. And uh, he went and played a tournament with them, came back and was like, dude, you have to, you have to give this a whirl. So I do. And I, I didn't realize until until I went to go play with this team that you needed a forehand like that. That's how big of a difference the, the gap of play. I didn't know there were picks. Obviously, didn't know any of the other rules other than 
if it hits the ground, it's a turnover. And I don't even know if we knew stall counts. I think we did. So the first year I played legitimate ultimate was probably, I think at the beginning of 2003. And it was at University of North Florida's campus, going to a community college at the time. And it took me about six months to learn how to throw a flick. So I can't say I've ever learned anything quickly. Oh, that's cool. And then you attended Wheaton College. So did you play out there or how did you get kind of introduced to then playing club ultimate for machine and kind of jumpstarting your club career? So I played a couple of years there as I started college. I I was just trying to save money. I kind of knew that I wanted to go to Wheaton College, but it was expensive. So I went the community college route for the first two years, transferred, knew that I wanted to play Frisbee there. And I knew that they started a club team what would have been my sophomore year, and I went to Wheaton my junior year. So it was a brand-new program. You can't even really call it a program, I guess, and at the time. And, yeah, I mean, we, we did fairly well. Like, we would compete at sectionals and sometimes make it to regionals. I knew of Machine, but they also had, at the time, a little bit of a legacy of being kind of a combative team. So it wasn't one of those things I was particularly interested in. I feel like this is probably a very common experience for ultimate players. It's like draws in this like really open sort of minded casual athlete who has this aversion to structure and yelling. And eventually you either like get over that or you don't <laughs> due to the appeal of the the competition. So yeah, I, I graduated college in 2006 and then moved back to Florida having not played with machine, but having made some, some friends there played on a local club team in Florida for a couple of years, trying to continue to improve. We put together a mixed team called jukebox hero in 2009, where it's a bunch of players from all over Florida. We made it to nationals that year. Oh, wow. How'd you do? We got ninth. So we did okay. We would have been in the top eight had I not gotten injured day one and then, like, we precipitously started to lose a game that we were in control of. Um, oh, no. I was able to play the rest of the tournament, but, I mean, it was a long time ago. And then uh, moved back to Chicago in 2010, tried out for Machine in 2011, made the team, uh, and had a chance to play with that team for a number of years, until 2016, I believe, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, the the leap from the sort of ultimate I was playing – to playing on machine was so significant. Like machine is a very well organized team and has a lot of institutional knowledge that they make sure that they, they deliver a practice week in and week out. And what would you say uh, you learned just with your time there? Maybe just share some fun memories or fun things that you uh, experienced with machine before you then went on to play somewhere else. Well, I mean, I can tell you one of the most important things to me about playing with machine aside from what I just mentioned about how they would work on various aspects of skills week in and week out and have a really good delivery of that and building their players was that it was the first time, especially coming from playing ultimate in Florida, it was the first time that I played competitive ultimate where there was a true representation of spirit of the game where like you don't have to be at each other's throats all the time as teammates or, or against your competitors, right. Against the other team, you don't, it's not a war situation. It's like, you're all there to compete. And there was more of an appreciation that we're able to play ultimate because the other team is even there, right? Like there's no playing if you don't have an opponent. And that made a huge impression on me because I I'm generally very amenable person and, and never liked the the strife that I sensed from the, the competitive play and, in Florida, but really liked moving up the rung of competition while simultaneously having a greater mutual respect across colleagues. For sure. And then, so you go from playing machine, then you go and play for Rally Ring of Fire. So can you maybe tell the audience what led to that decision? What things you learned in that experience? Yeah, it's it's so funny. People who know elite Frisbee history often are aware that Machine and Ring of Fire did not get along. It's true. I didn't want to bring that up, but you brought it up. So, <laughs> Yeah. There was a long history of Machine losing to Ring of Fire. And it was incredibly frustrating as a player. 
it, it had extended far before I joined the team in 2011 and went all the way until 2015 was the first year that we beat them. So there were, I can't remember, I think it was something like 12 losses in a row, something close to that. Cause we have, uh, we had a mean machine Twitter and I remember posting that like, <laughs> let it be known, no one beats machine 13 times in a row or something like that, which was a popular tweet. But yeah, I mean, I, I never had a lot of love for a ring of fire. And a lot of that was just how well they would gum up the offense. And then obviously the, like the associated like jeering and, uh, and kind of like sense that you would get from that team. Yeah. Like the booing, the booing was relatively new. I think, I think that was like a 2014 thing. And that came around as like a somewhat newer generation started to, to come into ring of fire, but the old generation was still there. And Machine had their easily their best season ever in 2014. We won almost every tournament we went to. We were in the finals, at least. And then we show up at Nationals, completely unprepared for Ring, while Ring, from what I understand, had like a two-hour session on us. And they, they beat us. They just beat us everywhere the whole game. It was the most frustrating loss of my <laughs> entire playing career. And it really left a like a bitter taste in all of our mouths because we had prepared better in 2014 than we had prepared in any other year. I swore, of course, that I would never play for Ring of Fire. 2016 rolls around. We lose to them as machine in quarterfinals again, but it had a completely different tenor that year. Like it wasn't pleasant playing them, but it also wasn't, I didn't feel like they were being completely and purely antagonistic either. Uh, and I knew right around that time that I was moving to Raleigh to basically, you know, be a friend with uh, Brett Matsuka, who was going to be taking a job there. He uh, he self-admittedly doesn't handle change that well. And so I was like, well, we've been hanging out a ton. I can work from home now. I, you know, change jobs. Let's go freaking move wherever you get a job. That's funny because he's played for a lot of teams. You no, know? he's played for like Prairie Fire, Johnny Bravo, and among some other teams. So it's kind of funny that you say that. He likes the change for teams, it seems. Like he can thrive on that, <laughs> but his day to day, like, can have some chaos associated with it. But when it's just buried in chaos, he doesn't do that well with it. So, yeah, we, uh, we moved to Raleigh. Even moving there, I, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to play with Ring of Fire. Wow. I had a couple of like really long conversations with Mike Denardis. You know, he convinced me to play Flyers and to give that a shot and give the the people on the team a shot to see if I'd want to play ring. And another classic story of being introduced to the people who you perceive as, you know, essentially the enemy and then becoming friends with them. But like I said, the tenor of the team in 2016 that we played against as Machine, that Ring of Fire squad, had already shifted. There were a lot of new like UNC kids who had very intentionally started to change the attitude of the team. It still had that slightly caustic experience, but it was more jovial than it was like menacing. And you also brought another uh, club legend there with you and Bob Lou, right? Over to ring that year. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Bob and I had been on a streak of playing together since maybe 2012 or 2013 with pretty much every team. And uh, gosh, I love playing with Bob. Bob is so much fun to play with. He is my polar opposite in many ways, personality wise and play style wise. He is an excellent vision for the field, breaks the mark at will and has no hesitation to bomb it. So, you know, it, it was so fun for me to be able to attack, you know, break side movements and Bob decide whether or not he wants to throw it. And if he doesn't, I just loop right out and he would send it. So you had some great success there with Ring of Fire, representing uh, USA World Ultimate Club Championship as well in 2018. And then it sounds like you decided to make a move over to San Diego. So what led to that, moving to San Diego for, for work or and then also playing for the SoCal Condors now? So in 2017, I started playing with Ring of Fire and lived in Raleigh the whole year. In 2018, I knew I was moving away, uh, having 
recently started a relationship with Kayla Jorgensen, who's now my wife, and we were trying to sort out where we were going to live. Raleigh wasn't a great fit for either of us. So we were exploring, you know, different places. And we did make an agreement. She had moved to Raleigh in 2017 so that we could see if the relationship was as promising as we had hoped that it was. It was everything and more that we could have hoped for. So to fulfill my (laughs) end of the promise, uh, I moved to California to allow her to play her Fury season in 2018. And I was a travel player for Ring of Fire in 2018, as well as Flyers. I knew that I didn't want to be a travel player for, for any longer than necessary, but I definitely wanted to capitalize on the success of the 2017 team and play at WUCC with uh, Ring. And also, I just love the Ring guys. At the conclusion of 2018, I knew that I would be playing local ultimate, even if local ultimate was not at a nationals caliber level. And during that time period, we moved from the Bay down to San Diego to get married and and sort of like down here. We both love the beach. Honestly, it's as simple as like nice weather and beach. That's, it was, we wanted year round access to a beach and we wanted relatively good weather. And there aren't a lot of places in the country where that's going to be the case. So how has your time been with the SoCal Condors? You guys made it to nationals in 2019 there. So how's your time been with them? They're a legacy program, of course, as many in the audience may know. So how's it been playing for that name brand? It was a very interesting experience. I think anytime you sh- you change teams, you have some ad- adopting and adapting to do, right? So like you, you've got some team culture things that you're going to have to sort out. You've got some style of play things that you're going to have to sort out. And I'm not generally the sort of player who's going to come in and dictate things. I just want to be a cog in the wheel, right? With Condors, I had to do a little bit of my normal thing and a little bit of coaching. I was able to take some steps forward in the, I guess you could say like the coaching and and leadership standpoint, beginning with Growlers, the ADL Growlers, which comprised probably 80% of the players that represented the team on SoCal Condors. So we're able to take some very basic offensive and defensive concepts and and get some good reps at them during the San Diego Growlers season and parlay that right into the SoCal Condors team. I mean, overall, a very positive experience. Like the guys are, the guys are chill. I mean, as you might imagine, a lot of them are like surfers, right? So, well, they're living in SoCal, right? So uh, why wouldn't they be uh, chill there, right? <laughs> exactly. Great competitors. They've been trying to make sure that they're perennial, perennial attenders to the national championships but uh, it hasn't necessarily always been the case right they've got oftentimes one bid for california and revolver is going to win that basically nine times out of ten or ten times out of ten they have to make a strong compelling case throughout the entire season that they deserve two spots out of california thankfully in 2019 we were able to do that we had we put together a solid regular season. And do you think that that's actually helpful for your team? Because it gives you that chip on your shoulder at every tournament to know that if you don't play well against certain teams that are interconnected with other teams in other regions, that you could lose a bid and potentially not go to nationals then. I think it does help the team overall. It, it didn't matter to me that much. Like as, as a competitor, my focus is, is twofold. Like do the, do the minimum amount necessary to make sure that the team has the confidence it needs to do well later in the season while simultaneously working on an upward trajectory the whole time. So, you know, one of the things that I've certainly experienced in with other teams and, and, and other years, it's like you, you could definitely come out of the gates really hot and have kind of a floundering season. Like you could, you could win us open, right. And then that's the best you do all year because your expectations aren't set appropriately. Your trajectory isn't set appropriately. So with Condors, at least for me, it was an interesting experience with our first tournament because we lost in a game that we probably should have won to Pony as our very first game during the regular season. And the guys were so dejected. I was like, this team won nationals last year. 
and we lost by like one or two points. They're like, yeah, but we should have, we should have won. I was like, I honestly don't care that we lost that particular game. This is our very first club game all year. Like we, yeah. we competed against a great team. We're going to collect a bunch of points off of that. If, if y'all are worried about that, but this shows that we have a, a lot of the tools that we're going to need to be able to do well this year. Like we, we need to build on this game. We do not need to dwell on this game. So I think it, for the overall team, it was important to know that our backs were against the wall with regard to points because they had missed out on nationals, I think, twice in the last five years based on fractional points. So they, they didn't want that to happen again. You know, thankfully, we didn't find ourselves in that position. We, we played up in games. That's awesome. And congrats again for uh, making nationals there with them. So we're going to talk a little bit now about your AUDL career, because I know that's probably helped you a lot, just even with your personal brand, your name being a two-time MVP. So can you talk a little bit, maybe just summarize your AUDL career and what it's meant to you and what it's given to you? I think it's important to start at the beginning, which is always a good place to start. And that is that in 2012, when the ADL was being announced, it was a complete mess. It was it was not well organized. And there were a lot of ultimate players that were unsure if it was even a hoax or if it was a real thing. Because it was like there, there was like a Craigslist application to, to trying out like it wasn't. The announcement didn't come through Rexport Disc, which was the, you know, R slash ultimate of its day. Yeah, the RSD, the RSD back in the day, too. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, like I, I went to a tryout. I, I drove from Chicago down to Indianapolis, half expecting this thing to just be a complete catastrophe. And it was fairly well organized. I can't say that they tested you on all the things that I would test an ultimate player on right now. Is you know, kind of some bizarre physical feats of speed and, and whatnot, but, or, or like kind of strange throwing drills, but you could get the sense pretty quickly that they at least were serious and that they, they had intents of having a, a full on season. So I became quickly very optimistic about what professional ultimate could mean for ultimate categorically. Like what, what happens if all of a sudden, you know, we have a moderately successful pro league or a semi-pro league where, you know, players are getting paid. The traditional model says that all of a sudden you're going to start seeing scholarships pop up for college players. And uh, you're going to see funding start to make its way down into like high school and maybe even younger. And that all sounded very appealing to me. I mean, the only thing that I knew to do at the time was to play and to play my best that way it could help, mm-hmm. you know, make sure it happened. I also did what I could to help recruit Brody to play because I knew that him as a namesake would significantly improve the visibility of at least the attempt of a pro league. My very first throw in the UDL was a 40 yard swing. It was like a maybe 45 yard swing because the field is 53.3 yards wide. <laughs> a normal club field is 40 yards wide. And I cannot tell you how, utterly bizarre it felt to huck the disc laterally in a live game but yeah I mean since that time the league has evolved a lot and and become significantly more professional in the the way that it does pretty much everything I have definitely enjoyed the I guess you could say the exposure to the public that the UDL has granted me and you know it was pretty easy to stand out in the first year or two because the the overall level of play just was in pretty stark contrast to what it is now that the the talent just wasn't participating in the league yet. You know, I was able to get something like 46 blocks my first year playing offense. And that just tells you like how much of a catastrophe our offense was, right? It's just like the, the games were turnover laden to a very high level, especially playing in the Midwest where the weather conditions are extremely challenging weekly. But, you know, the game has improved. The throwing percentages have improved across the board for everyone. And it's been really cool to see that evolve. I I personally plan to continue to to play in the AUDL as long as I can and coach there, hoping that it continues to reach a wider and wider audience, that we continue to get more and more committed players to come play. To bring it kind of all full circle here, what made you want to pursue Ultimate as the main thing that you pursued in your quote unquote adult life, because you could have played 
let's say other sports, but what made you pursue ultimate at this level? I'm not sure I will ever know the answer to that question. If I'm totally honest, I am fairly athletic and you know, a lot of what I've been able to accomplish has come through extensive training, but I don't think that I could have accomplished what I've done in ultimate and in a lot of other sports. Like I, I ran track, I played basketball. I wasn't a significant standout in either one of these. It didn't help that I didn't know that I needed glasses when I was playing basketball. You know, discovering that did did help significantly. The rim looks a lot different when you can really see it. I mean, that's a true point. Hopefully you can see the Frisbee too, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I ended up getting LASIK surgery and that helped. But, you know, I, I think that part of the appeal of Ultimate is that it has had a lot less structure than other sports and that the way that you interact with your opponents is fundamentally different. I've always really enjoyed that. I don't handle conflict that well interpersonally. Like it bothers me deeply. It's one of those things that will wake me up at three in the morning. If I have a relationship with someone who, you know, it's not in line. Right. And so that extends to even sports. I, I want to have healthy relationships with the people that I'm playing with and playing against. And I'm able to do that in ultimate in a way that I don't think is afforded in a lot of other sports. And then also, I just, you know, we talked a little bit about this offline earlier, the demands of ultimate feel so much more complete than a lot of other sports. Like you have to be extremely aerobically fit while simultaneously having to have large anaerobic, you can't really say reserves, but bouts of explosion, right? Where you have to sprint recover, sprint, recover, jump, you know, lay out. And then of course, there's always the cliche of just the beauty of a flying disc. I don't know what it is about that. We're all really drawn to it. Dogs and humans, well, whatever it is, we dig it. (laughs) There you go. That's, that is true. And uh, so the last question here, this segment, you've obviously played at, at the highest level that you can in ultimate here. What's the advice you would give to someone listening at home or wherever they are about trying to reach that next level? This is going to sound really basic, but prepare to play at the next level. I mean, get a vision for where you want to be playing and create a plan to do it. It's not going to happen overnight. Some things take a long time to cultivate. Athleticism is one of those things. Like I heard this really interesting Q&A session between a heptathlete and her audience, I think on Instagram or something like that. And somebody asked her, you know, how long does it take you to get in peak shape? She's like, oh, well, you know, if I've already been training, so I'm in moderately, you know, no, you know, good general physical preparedness, probably like a year and a half. Ultimate players have no idea what a year and a half means uh, when it comes to training, right? Like that, that blows the average person's expectations out of the water. They think, all right, they think a couple months. <laughs> yeah, I, eight weeks. Give me eight weeks. I'll be, I'll play myself into shape and whatnot. It's like, all right, well, look, if your expectations are that eight weeks of work will get you to the top, your expectations are wrong. Or you're playing a sport where the top is easy to achieve. And I can't tell you that ultimate is that sport anymore. It has been that sport, but it's not that sport anymore. And the same is going to be true of, uh, of your skills. Like you're going to have to, you know, we're not playing fitness so it's not just uh, the physical preparation. You, you have to acquire all the requisite Frisbee skills. You have to be an excellent thrower. You need to be able to have the field vision and anticipation to be able to play. And so you need to have a bit of a plan of how you're going to acquire those skills. The, the easiest way of doing that, and this is not uh, uncommon advice, is to go play with the best team that you have access to. Even if you're a practice player, you competing against players of a caliber that are beyond your capacities is going to help you way more than playing against players that are well below your capacities. Uh, if you're like the leader of, you know, the B team or something like that. No, no, go do what you can to be the, the youngling on the A team. Do what you can to be the practice player on that club team that, that you want to be on. Learn their systems. Learn how they're discussing strategy. That stuff will pay dividends that's the advice you got some advice there from uh, goose helton himself so we're going to move to segment two here day-to-day life 
Obviously, with COVID, uh, things are changed, as we mentioned earlier. No national championships right now. So what does your day-to-day life look like sort of in a non-COVID situation as an ultimate player, but also as the CEO of GamePoint Performance? A job that pays rent, if you will, is that I am uh, an investment advisor or a financial advisor. And I have a handful of clients. I help them map out their financial futures. I can't say that I spend more time doing that than I do on my game point performance career. I do, as you mentioned earlier, serve as CEO for that company. And so I, I spend probably 30 hours a week doing game point performance things. Associated with that, thankfully, and under that umbrella, I can act somewhat as a marketing arm myself as an athlete. So I can roll <laughs> my training time into what at least what I would like to perceive as my my work time. <laughs> my my day to day is certainly not regimented. I can't say that. So I, I do work from home. I you know generally wake up before seven o'clock. You know I have I have my coffee beverage, and anything after that is like any man's guess. It's like I'll read my Bible. I'll have my coffee, and then the day could be spent doing interviews. The day could be spent having a film shoot for the business. It could be spent building financial plans. But one thing that is very consistent, regardless of what time of day it is, is that I'm going to be training. I generally train even in a non-COVID world and even in a COVID world six days a week. Long-term athletic development is, uh, is long-term athletic development. And Regardless of whether or not you're competing, there's, there's work to be done. I think that that also helps me. You know, it's very common for people to talk about mental health these days, and rightfully so. It's one of the things that I think helps ground me. You can very easily become disconnected with what's going on within your head from what's going on in your body. And the more that that happens, the, the more of a sense of disconnect you're going to get. So for me, training ends up filling the physical void that exists as a function of being a, a working person in 2020, right? Like where you're at a desk most of the time, or you're at least, maybe you're not doing bricklaying or something extremely physical. My, my day is, like I said, kind of split between all these different hats. But yeah, training happens the same, whether or not there's a season or not for me. I'm also 36 years old now, so I am unwilling to like shorten my ultimate career due to a failure for preparation, right? Like I would like to continue to play ultimate for as long as I, I can play meaningful points. And so far, I've been able to, you know, offer help on meaningful points. That's uh, awesome to hear. And what would you say to people who? Because I've heard of this just personally in different situations of people perhaps grieving the fact that, um, you know, there's no ultimate this year. And uh, how would you motivate that person when they're, you know, they don't want to train as, as you kind of talked about your training all year round, long-term athlete development. Not everyone may see that. So what would you say to them? Well, I mean, you basically have to think about, and first of all, you have to think about it. And, and a lot of people don't sit and think about these things. They just kind of let things happen and and th- there's a place for that. But if you're talking about something that you spend a lot of time and money on year in and year out, with the exception of the year where the, the season is canceled, it's worth at least exploring these things. It's worth, worth thinking them through. It's like, what do you think is going to happen when it's time to play ultimate again? And you haven't been training. You haven't been playing much ultimate or, or any ultimate, perhaps. The, the likelihood of you returning to play without interruption, without some sort of injury, is, is not that high. I mean, goodness, look at NFL players right now. Yeah, yeah. Injury, the injury list is huge. <laughs> right. And, and that's a function of a lot of those players taking some extra time off because of the same disillusionment that we had. And it's a function of them not having a bunch of team practices to, to adequately prepare them for the demands of their sport. We're in the same situation. You know, obviously our return to play is going to be happening later because of the nature of our sport. But it's like you, you need to prepare for these things. And, and if you really care about ultimate, you probably care about your physical well-being. So why not just like let those two things 
mesh, right? Like why not train instead of just arbitrarily working out? I haven't been drawn to going doing a bodybuilding program in lieu of doing something that would better prepare me for the next year of Frisbee. You know, maybe you want to go do another sport in the interim. Like maybe you want to take up mountain biking because you can do that safely. Absolutely. Go mountain bike. But you could probably do some at least general things that would train you for ultimate that would coincide well with what the, the demands are for my mountain biking. So, I mean, you just, it's okay to be disillusioned. And I totally understand that. I, have, I, I went through ebbs and flows of excitement for, you know, what, what the next year would bring. Yeah, I just don't think you do yourself any favors by taking a really long time, a really long time away from the physical preparation. There's some uh, words of wisdom there from Goose Helm given to you straight there. I do appreciate that. So last question here. How do you balance all this? As you mentioned, you're doing the CEO stuff. You're an investment advisor. Is that correct? An investment advisor? Right. And you're playing club and perhaps AUDL. So do you sleep or like how do you balance that off? I absolutely sleep. In fact, I would say that, you know, sleep and eating fairly well are prerequisites to doing all the things that I'm doing. I, I really do try to make sure I get eight hours of sleep. Uh, at worst, I try to make sure I'm in bed for eight hours. And, you know, if I don't sleep for the whole eight hours, I don't sleep for the whole eight, eight hours. But I wake up without an alarm clock. And I usually wake up knowing that I have some things that I have to attack, right? Like I, I know some things that, but not necessarily things that were going to keep me up overnight because they're on the to-do list. Anytime I have that sort of situation, I just write them down so that I can just sleep. But I wake up and there are a lot of things I need to tackle for the day. So feeling rested and feeling cognitively prepared to take on a lot of things makes a, a, a really big difference. I also try to make sure that I find motivation in some other realms, like, like reading lectures, long form educational content, the way I can, you know, feel like I'm being fed from something other than just, you know, a sense of duty to the various jobs that I have. I like the sense of, you know, improving myself and, and bringing new knowledge to the table because you never know when that stuff will apply. Like I'm, I mean, some things are more obvious than others. Right now I'm reading a book called Make It Stick, which is about human learning. And for anybody who wants to know more about how humans learn, go check out that book. It's really phenomenal. You'll also be able to reflect as you read that book on, if you're listening to this as a club player, perhaps about how the way that your practices are designed are actually working or maybe where there's some room for improvement. So shout out to that book. <laughs> it's very well written and it's all oriented around research. It's not speculation, but a book like that can bring refreshment to, you know, kind of a chaotic life that I have where I never really know what I'm going to be getting into that day, but I have a sense of excitement about it because I, my, my perspectives are constantly shifting and I feel like I'm gaining more insight on a day-to-day -day basis as a result of infusing those outside sources. And would you say with the training, you said that you don't necessarily have like a set schedule each day because, you know, new things come up. So how do you sort of ensure that you have the habit of training just every day? What What are some cues or I've read a lot of books on habits. For example, Atomic Habits is a good book that I recommend by James Clear. And so how do you build that habit of training, even though it might be, you know, six o'clock here one day, two o'clock the next day? Yeah, I think, I mean, gosh, exploring your own habits is an extremely useful thing. I think one of the things that I've learned from reading about habits is that you cannot get rid of a bad habit. You have to replace it. Like that's, that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned about habits. And when it comes to training, I'm not sure so much of it is a habit as it is a priority for me. I am going to look at my day and figure out, I know that I'm training. I just have to figure out when I'm going to be training. So am I going to do it in the middle of the day whenever I have a work break or when I need a work break, basically over lunch, so that I get it done early? Maybe. Maybe the weather is going to dictate when I'm going to be doing it. Am I going to be performing a workout that needs to be done during daylight? If so, does it need to be done during that lunch time period or can I squeeze it in before sunset? All I know 
is that it's going to happen, right? Like I'm going to make it happen. The training that I do doesn't actually cause that much suffering. So it's not hard for me to show up and do it. Some of the training that, you know, that I've, I've done in the past and that I know that other people are doing, it hurts and it's hard. And, it, and like, you have to drag yourself to go do it. That's not how it has to be. Like you can very easily, you know, either develop a plan or, or purchase a plan for your training where it's not a slog. It's just like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to do this almost every day, like five days a week, six days a week, four days a week, whatever it is. And, you know, some days are harder than others, but none of them are truly grueling. You just knock it out. You feel good afterwards. Like, why not? I don't know. Yeah, I, lo- I like the motivation here. It's uh, it's good stuff. So we're going to move to segment three here, Goose. Uh, we're going to dip back into your archive here as a player, both club, AUDL, Worlds, all that good stuff. So can you share favorite game that you've ever played in? If I absolutely had to choose one, it would certainly be the finals game of 2016, Team USA versus Japan men's. It's one of the most watched games in, in Frisbee as far as YouTube views is concerned. For good reason, right? <laughs> Yeah, it was a great game. Uh, it was also in front of 10,000 people, which made it extremely exciting. At the time, it's obviously s- still the case. You know, it's just the best men's team that had ever been thrown together. I mean, that could be somewhat subjective, but I think it's objectively the case. And so, you know, rolling into that game, you know, obviously we had a lot of confidence, but we knew how good Japan was. And we knew that they could very quickly punish you for mistakes. So we went in, you know, feeling very sharp. But we also went in, you know, having had a lot of really important off-field conversations about what our fears were as a team and as individuals and how we would face those. And those conversations, you know, led us to facing a very threatening Japanese team with confidence and with like a, a sense that we weren't going to let each other lose. So the game was so fun. It had a little bit of everything, right? Like, if you love watching American Ultimate or like traditional Western Ultimate, you you got your fix from that. If you liked seeing a team do completely different things than Western style Ultimate, you got all of that that you wanted and more, whether it was defensively or offensively. Really exciting plays made by, you know, well-known names in the sport. Very fast paced game, lots of hucks. And it was tight. There was at no point that you could be sure that one team was going to be victorious over another that's sweet and i'll leave that video link in the show description as well if you want to check it out if you have not already seen it but uh how did you feel or or what did you uh do first thing when you got the call that you're going to be on this uh 2016 u.s team there i was so happy and also kind of relieved i had i've been training very hard for months on end for that tryout and at the tryout itself, which was the first one I had attended of its kind. And, and obviously it was the, the first time that USAU had decided to comp, compose their WGC team of uh, a multitude of different teams. Because mm-hmm. in 2012, it was basically Revolver. That's exactly right. Then they, you know, they were able to throw in a couple of extra players like mm-hmm. Kirk Gibson. But yeah, 2016 was the first opportunity for me to compete in a tryout like that I had never like there there hadn't been any like U20 or U24 teams whenever I was competing at that age and I had not tried out for world games so it was was my first experience at any of the the tryouts of this kind and uh, I didn't actually know how to prepare that much for it so I just went as far in the direction of physical preparation as I possibly could and then with Bob Lou as a training partner, we, we worked as much on our frisbee skills as we could without actually being able to play. Like we, we threw all the time. We marked each other. When I was at the tryout, I felt fantastic. I, I like showed up in a, in a dominant fashion. And so whenever I left the tryout, I didn't know, you know, you have no idea how well the West tryout went because I went to the East mm. tryout that year. And I knew based on the experience of being at these tryout that I had been a top performer, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to get selected at that time, still not really made huge waves in, in the club scene. So I didn't know if they'd be picking it on reputation or the actual tryout, but I did make the team. I was hugely relieved, even though I you know, suspected that I 
played to the quality of someone that would be selected. And uh, you also made the 2020 team, which obviously isn't happening this year, but hopefully uh, you will uh, you will play in 2021 there. That was <laughs> almost equally thrilling in a different way. I, I have to say that I, I believe the tryout talent depth was greater at the 2020 tryouts. So theoretically a harder team to make. Mm-hmm. And I was playing because this is the way that it always goes at the oldest age that I had been at yet <laughs> by necessity. Can't, you can't go down an age, right? So <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Let me know if you do. <laughs> and so I knew that I would be competing at that tryout, you know, turning 36 and, you know, still as like a primarily as a cutter, kind of a hybrid player. And it's just not often that you find somebody in their mid thirties competing downfield. And so I felt like the cards were stacked against me a little bit in that way, which gave me a little bit of an edge. Like I gave me something to try to prove that maybe I perhaps even improved as a player since my 2016 experience. You know, I knew how to prepare for the tryout this time. And at the tryout, once again, I felt like I, I represented myself very well. And so I was more so relieved than I was excited for making the team because of the level of expectations I'd set for myself. But yeah, I mean, over time, I just became more and more excited, but it didn't take long before we became abundantly aware that there was a global pandemic that was going to pump the brakes (laughs) on any international competitions. But I would be absolutely delighted if that team got to compete. It's such a, such a talented group, the the men's team from, from USA this, this round. And, I have a lot of friends on it and I really want to play Frisbee with them. Good that you're thinking happy thoughts right now because we're going to go into the opposite direction here and talk about the least favorite game you played. You alluded to something earlier in one of the earlier segments, but maybe uh, you want to change your mind and talk about a different game. I mean, truly the most heartbreaking game was losing to Ring in 2014 while I was playing with Machine. We were poised to do very well at that tournament. We won all of our games the, the first day of Nationals. The second day of Nationals, you know, we're rolling in. We're thinking about who we're going to be playing in quarters because Ring had had an underwhelming season that year. And we entered a grind. We weren't able to put it together. I was playing defense that season for the last half of the season, defensive lines. And as our offense was broken, I was brought over. And I was not equipped at the time to help us overcome the adversity. I just wasn't at that level of of a player to where I could actually take over. And that was also heartbreaking. It was like, I knew that I personally failed the team to be able to like buoy us to where we needed to be. I was the reserve O-line player. So that was tough. That was really tough. You know, we went from going into the tournament ranked second. And I think we ended up being like 14th place or something like that as a result of losing immediately in pre-quarters and then precipitously performing terribly at the rest of the tournament and having had our, our hearts broken. Yeah, I just went up as a band once said, newfound glory there. It's all downhill from here. So <laughs> there you go. And then this year with Machine uh, being very successful at the USA Club Championships, how did that make you feel as a former Machine player? Oh, I was thrilled for them. I mean... Gosh, when you look at the semifinals, I had two alma maters basically there, right? Like I had <laughs> Ring of Fire, who's a perennial semifinal team. Even if they have a terrible regular season, they somehow figure out a way to get in there. And they somehow figure out a way to lose in a universe point. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been like a few years now like that. I know uh, people have been talking about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the machine, you know, I, I had been watching them throughout the year and had a few very candid conversations with club players of various sorts. And they were asking who I thought were the top like eight teams. And I kept mentioning machine and usually nobody else was mentioning machine. I was like, have you seen their roster? Like they haven't put it together yet, but they've got the roster for it. And I've been on that team long enough to know that they, they know how to build a season. They really do. You can, you can definitely lack the organization and the foresight in your leadership to be able to, to do that. But, you know, Machine, I knew, was very capable of it, especially with Walden Nelson still being at the helm. 
And gosh, they, I mean, they were super exciting. Too. I thought they were going to win it. I thought they were going to take down Sakai, especially when they started making that run. I knew that, you know, Vaughn had game changing blocks in his tool belt. Like he, he can do that sort of thing. And it just took a couple of like moments of excitement to completely change that game. I was thrilled for them. I was one of the first people to run down after the game and try to give my former teammates hugs. In some ways, I was sad to not be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's probably mixed emotions there when you see uh, your alma maters there uh, playing them in the semis. But we're going to move here to the last segment, Rapid Fire. We're going to do some related to Ultimate. So the first one is, what do you prefer, throwing your flick or backhand? Probably throw my flick. Hammer or scuba? Stuff. Scuba's more fun. Would you rather drop a pole or drop a catch in the end zone? Probably catch a goal in the end zone if for no other reason the consequences are less i don't know less predictable <laughs> it's like you drop it you drop a pull the other team's scoring yeah yeah for sure have you done both of those by the way have you have you uh ever dropped a pull or dropped a ca- open catch in the end zone there i have never dropped a pull in like a real game i certainly have done it in like pickup or something like that and i'm sure i've dropped at some point you know, I have a tendency to dwell on major mistakes and then eventually forgive myself. <laughs> we all need to hear that, though. We all need to hear that. So would you rather win five silver medals at Nationals or one gold medal? Oh, that is tough. Probably silver medal. As much as it kind of pains me to say that, I feel like the experience of I mean, I guess it's somewhat reflective of my career. It's like, I want, I want to play a long time at a high level and periodically peek over the clouds. I don't want to just peek over the clouds once and then that's it. So if you're, if you're, if you're getting five silver medals, you're making the finals by like five straight years or something like that. This is a, sometimes a controversial one. Should Ultimate be renamed to something else? Ooh, I can see why. Probably. I'd be totally fine if it was. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people don't mind the name being changed. You just don't know if it's, you know, it's probably too late for it. So (laughs) I think the bigger complication is not that it's a dumb name, which objectively it's it's a dumb name. It's that, you know, the the word Frisbee (laughs) is not one that we can use freely. I think that one further complicated because you can't just say ultimate casually and people kind of understand what you're talking about yeah you have to add the frisbee part but that's technically trademark so you actually can't do that so and then should ultimate be in the olympics i know that's something that a lot of people have been talking about i absolutely think that it should at least strive to be in the olympics you know i'd love to see it in the olympics i certainly won't be able to play if it, it makes it to the olympics like if it's 2028 i'll be like something like what 44 years old or something so i will not be representative on that team in a playing capacity but you you could be cheering in the stands though i i could i could be a strength and conditioning coach i could you know coach another some sort of other fashion absolutely i, I think the reality is that the olympics represent pinnacle sport and until that changes then i think that that should be something that we're pursuing it's um I understand the arguments that go counter to that, but reach as high as you can reach. And what about should ultimate, I know you've probably been in some windy games, so should ultimate use a weighted disc in the wind? I can't say that I've ever been asked that question before. Uh, We try to give you something new here on the podcast. So do appreciate, uh, do appreciate the freshness coming out. I'll say no for now, but I certainly understand that when it becomes more than 30 miles an hour, that the game disintegrates precipitously and perhaps a weighted disc would, would help facilitate a better game. Yeah, I know uh, talking to Evan Lepler, he talked about the the one pro championships that was really bad. I'm not sure if you were at that tournament, but that was... Uh, but yeah, that was Minnesota. Awful. It was awful. <laughs> yeah. So maybe for a tournament like that, for a windy condition like that, you might need it. Yeah, it's very possible. So we're going to move into some non-ultimate questions here to wrap up. I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. 
They can be living or brought back from the dead. So you can choose anyone. Okay. So who would they be? All right. I think undoubtedly the the pick I would I would choose with certainty is is Jesus. He had a lot of weird things to say during his time that have become normalized now, but still I believe are misunderstood. And I I have a lot of things I'd want to pick his brain about. <laughs> Jesus, why'd you say this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? That's so perplexing. Why would you say that? And then I kind of would want to talk to. This is going to sound so biblically oriented, but I want to talk to Eve. I want to know like what was going through her head. Like what? Clearly, she was in a weird situation. Like also, I'd want to know what was the snake like before it had its legs taken away. God gave a curse to the snake and was like, now you're going to have to go around on your belly. Like, what did that snake look like before that? I want to know. You can see the philosophy degree uh, in action here, just thinking about all these things. I love it. <laughs> and then I guess, uh, I mean, there are a lot of other people, but well, since I've already developed a biblical theme, Methuselah, he lived to be 969 years old. And I just got to know what that was like. I got to know. So that is, that is a good mix there. What would the conversations be about, like, oh, kids these days? Like, how many iterations of that would he have had? I got to know. Yeah, that's true. So Jesus, Eve, and Methuselah at the table with Goose Helton there. And my next question is, I'm not sure if you have a nice backyard overlooking the ocean or something like that here in San Diego, or there in San Diego, I should say. But I'm going to give you a chance to put on a concert in your backyard. You can book any band or artist in the world. The band could be alive, could be, you know, passed away and moved on, or an artist as well. So you got to pick three and the order in which they play. All right. The order in which they would play would first be Cake. I think they would bring the energy up and it'd be a little bit silly. The the meat in the sandwich would be a band <laughs> that I don't think a lot of people know very well called mother mother they're pretty unusual but man i would love to see them in concert and then my favorite band that's mostly stood the test of time is probably alt j yeah i've seen them in concert one time and it was an incredible experience i would love to see them again so there's uh there's goose's concert there i got some cake and then mother mother and then alt j to finish it up so that's your uh, that's your fantasy uh, band lineup there. And uh, last question here. You can't choose ultimate as the answer to this question. So I'm going to give you all the talent in the world. You already have a lot of athletic talent, as you mentioned. So you can pick any other sport to play. Could be pro, could be, you know, amateur, whatever. And like the team and position you'd play for. I mean, right now, as silly as it sounds, I would probably play tag. I don't know if you've seen these guys play tag. Oh, the professional tag. I've seen, I've seen that. There's like indoor, like, yeah, yeah, I've seen videos of it. It is unbelievable. They're basically integrating parkour with, yeah. just, you know, reaction. And that to me is also like a pinnacle of athleticism sort of thing. I, I'm not saying that I'd be good at it because I, I have a lot of requisite work to do to work on it, but it would be so fun. Even though it seems so silly, I would totally be into that. So you'd be, uh, instead of being an ultimate player, you're going to be a professional uh, tag player, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So that actually ends our episode for today there, Goose. Time flies by there. So if our audience wants to find out more about you and what you do, where can they find you online? I'm on most of the social media giants. <laughs> Uh, like Instagram and Facebook as, uh, you know, at Goose00Helton. And then uh, they'll see my face and a lot of the things I think about training at the Game Point Performance channels, gamepointperformance.com or at GamePTPerform uh, for Instagram and, and Facebook and whatnot. So I'll leave all that stuff in the show description as well if you want to check that out. So Goose... As we can tell from this episode, you're a busy person. So thanks again for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast. Do appreciate that. 
I appreciate you asking me to come. It's always a delight to talk about random things. And I don't know, I have a way of communicating with the broader ultimate audience. I really enjoy that. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for next week's episode where I interview Allison Fisher, coach for Quebec Iris and Team Canada. Hear about Allison's journey from playing into coaching and the unique story of how she played her first ultimate game. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commenting highlights on my YouTube at one and only sports. And you can reach me by email at theo.wan6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.